Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Not long ago, I was at a dinner party, and I had the good fortune of sitting next to Senator Patrick Leahy, who has represented Vermont since 1975. It was a small group of ambassadors, members of Congress, journalists, and other self-important Washingtonians. But what I remembered most was how Leahy, speaking in a low rumble, quieted the room with a steady stream of incredible war stories. In fact, I brought messages back and forth between Raul Castro and the Obama administration. Unsigned, unaddressed, but they knew who they were from. Populated with famous politicians, world leaders, and assorted Washington characters spread over five decades. He said he was working on a memoir, and I knew it was going to be good. I hope they'll see the part where things worked when senators came together. That book, The Road Taken, is out this week, and it doesn't disappoint. I do remember one senator. Anybody ever tell you you're too young to be in the Senate? And I kind of bristled, and I said, yeah, my opponent, for one. Leahy, who is retiring after eight terms, is the president pro tem of the Senate, making him third in the line of presidential succession behind Vice President Harris and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. It also means he gets a security detail and a stately office on the north side of the Capitol, where we met recently and discussed 48 years' worth of senatorial history. And his side gig appearing in five Batman movies, including The Dark Knight. We're not intimidated by thugs. Which my son reliably informs me is the best of the franchise. You remind me of my father. I hated my father. I also asked him if he thinks his longtime Senate colleague, President Joe Biden, should run for re-election. Leahy's answer may surprise you. He understands what's possible. He understands what's impossible. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Speaking of senators who become president, what was the closest you ever came to thinking about running for president? Because I never, never. No, how is it possible? Uh, no, You're the only fact, senator in history that that wouldn't have occurred to then. No, uh, well, I'm third in line to the presidency, but but that's uh, not bad. I, I, no, yeah, but I I don't want. You don't want to get it that way, though. No, good <laughs> Lord, no. No, I, you know, I, I've been approached to various other jobs of government. Yeah. Attorney General, FBI Director, Supreme Court. I like being a senator. Uh, I like having the ability to be my own person. Knowing Biden as long as you've known him, uh, you guys come from both come from small states. It's very funny the way you talk about Vermont. It's very similar when you hear Biden talk about Delaware and how everyone knows each other. Just assess how you think he's done so far. He ran on this idea that coming from the Senate, he would be someone that could really, you know, uh, be a deal maker. Ironically, at the end of the day, what got his what got his biggest deal through was stepping back and letting 
you know, essentially Manchin and, and, and Schumer wor- work out that deal. But he was there behind the scenes. And I, I pointed to some of the things. One, it was refreshing to have somebody in the White House who actually had a sense of history, understood and respected what the presidency is, that the presidency is for the country and not for your individual aggrandizement. Uh, Trump thought it was all about him. It's a very low bar. uh, Well, you know, Trump was my generals, my this, my papers, my intelligence agencies. Well, it's not his. It's the country's. Well, I'll give you one example. You want to compare the two presidents. Ukraine. Do you think Donald Trump ever could have gotten the NATO countries to join together in opposition to Russia, for one thing, especially with, with Trump, the way he's praised, praised Russia, praised Putin, uh, never could have. It took the fact that Joe Biden knew many of these leaders, has spent time with them. He spent a lot of time talking privately, things that did not come out in the press, as he brought them together. Because uh, Ukraine would have disappeared by now. He's got some significant legislation through. His uh, Supreme Court justice, she's a lot better than the three that Donald Trump nominated. So people point out little things about him. Well, maybe he's this or maybe he's that. The fact is he understands the government. He understands what's possible. He understands what's impossible. And he understands when to give credit to others, uh, which he does, even though he might be the one who actually pulled the strings. Do you think he should run for re-election? That's going to be his decision. If he does, I'll support him. I do wonder if you could just tell us what what you were doing and what January 6th was, was like for you. I'm sitting there uh, in the Senate. We all were. Uh, Vice President Pence up on the podium. All of a sudden, people are rushing in the Senate floor, including the Secret Service. And, and the Secret Service does not come on the floor when the Vice President there. They come rushing in. And I look up and I look to this to my side. Here's a man with a machine gun. I can't believe I'm seeing this. When the police officer comes up, takes the podium, we, we told him, turn on the microphone. He did. And he said, we have to evacuate. We have to evacuate right now, right now. And uh, I got up. Police officer took me by the arm. We go down the back stairways. Uh, we w- walked over to another building underground to a secure area. And on the way over, I'm seeing more and more police officers and people in riot gear coming out. And I said, this, this can't be happening. We then get in the secure area, and there were TV sets that turned that on, and we started seeing the pictures of the mob coming in. The fighting, we saw uh, police officers being beaten, and people running through. I saw some running right by the doorway of my office, and they said it's going to be hours before we go back to the Senate floor because the guy had 
bomb sniffing dogs and everything else. And they got to secure the place. They still had people running around. And somebody pointed out that we could meet in the room we're in. The, the Senate could meet, could vote to meet anywhere we wanted. Yeah. Uh, we could vote to meet at an airport. But I stood up. I said, no, I got really angry. I said, I'm the dean of the Senate. I'm the longest serving member. We can't meet in private with what's going on if it takes till midnight. Wait till the Senate chamber is secure and go back in there and let the American people see us and make everybody stand up and vote and show where they are. And I got really wound up. I got a standing ovation from Republicans and Democrats. They said, you're right. And that's, that goes back to my conscience of the nation. Well, several people who are going to vote to contest the ballots or the count changed their mind at that point. And we went back in there and continued. But feeling glass crunching under my feet, feeling the crunchy stuff from uh, fire extinguishers, and you could smell that. And I thought, what is going on? Who do these people think they are? Why did the president, the outgoing president, urge them to do this? It went against everything I've ever believed in. Let's talk about the, the Senate as it was when you arrived after the election in 74. Well, I, I do remember one senator saying to me as I first year, he said, boy, how old are you? And I said, well, I'm 34. Anybody ever tell you you're too young to be in the Senate? And I kind of bristled and I said, yeah, my opponent for one, he loved it. <laughs> we became- we Who was this? became very good friends. But, uh, and he liked the fact that I didn't back down. But the, the Senate, I remember Mike Mansfield, Vice uh, Man. He's the majority leader when you get there. Majority leader, Democrat. Here. And here I am, the junior most member of the Senate. He came in, he said, I'll just give you one bit of advice always keep your word. So I hope you'll vote with me on issues. Most importantly, keep your word. And everybody did back then. Republicans, Democrats, everybody kept their word. It was, you couldn't do otherwise. And now, I worry that a number of people have forgotten that. There's a piece of advice you quote from Mansfield that I think the president often quotes about um, debating and um, motivations versus uh, um, positions. Um, just remind everyone what that was and how and why it's so important. Yeah, he said, don't question their motives. Keep in mind, everybody comes from a different background. Get to know them. When I lead a, a congressional delegation somewhere, I try to make sure I've got both Republicans and Democrats across the political spectrum in it because it's a chance to get to know each other. Years ago, I became chairman of the Agriculture Committee. I held hearings around the country. We do it first in one state, 
with a Republican senator on the committee, and I'd ask them to chair the hearing. Then we'd do one with the Democratic. But I asked all the senators to come to each state. And as a result, uh, we moved what might have been contentious legislation. We got it through, including uh, the law that set up the organic farm bill, which is now a $60 billion or so industry. We accomplished a lot. But but that's the way there are other senators I'd learned that from who did the same thing. Mark Hatfield, a Republican. Hatfield was from where? He, he was from Oregon. Oregon. And uh, Howard Baker from Tennessee, uh, both Republicans, worked very closely with Democrats. They got a lot done. Right, so Baker, he was the first majority, Republican majority leader. After I came here, yeah. In a long, long time, right. Yeah, I think in 40-some-odd years. Let's go through some of those majority leaders in, in the early days. and Maybe you can reflect a little bit about the different styles. And Mansfield, Byrd, and Baker. You, you, you write a lot about Robert Byrd, obviously a, a, a legend in the Senate. What were the most important lessons you took from Byrd? And tell us a little bit about what kind of majority leader he was. Well, he had a real sense of the um, Senate. He knew the Senate history, better anybody else. But his interests were the Senate and only the Senate. And <laughs> As an he, institution. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, but he believed in uh, you, keep your, you keep your word. If I was going to vote on a position against him, I'd go and tell him. What he could not stand was people telling him, yeah, I'll probably be with you, and then weren't. Basically, he's saying, stand up for the Constitution, stand up for the rules of the Senate, stand up for what the Senate should be. Now, Bob certainly liked to win on his points. He uh, liked to deliver for West Virginia. But first and foremost, he won the Senate to be respected and the rules to be followed. I don't take the same rigid attitude. I believe what he's, he said, you keep your word, you follow the rules. I believe in reaching out more and, and convincing people, why don't we do this because it's the right thing to do? Not because I, I'm i the chairman of appropriations or I'm the president pro tem, and, and if you don't go along with this, it's not going to work well for you. There was one, when you first got here, you had a very tough vote because you came in on an anti-Vietnam War platform and you were on the Armed Services Committee and you had, you were, you voted to not to um, authorize the, the, the war. You write in the book that you worried that the, the chairman of the committee was going to uh, punish you for, for the vote. So was, was it tough? Was it, a, was that a tough vote or? Well, I, Ironically, at that time, the majority of people in Vermont supported the war in Vietnam. Mm. I couldn't support it. I, I thought it was wrong, a bad mistake. Um, we had had members, Congress from Vermont, express concerns about the war, but never voted to stop the war. I said I was going to vote against it. The editor of our largest newspaper told me if I did that, this is my last term, and they would make sure that it was. 
Tell us a little bit about one unlikely, or at least people might think of it as an unlikely today, unlikely friendship that you had during this era um, with Barry Goldwater, a fellow photographer. Well, Barry, Barry and I got along very well. He came to Vermont with me. We talked a lot about photography. We would show each other photographs. I, I have a lot of my photographs around here in the room, and he had great ones in his room. And in 1980, I had the second closest election in America. And I was speaking at something in Vermont about a week later. Somebody obviously disagreed with me. He said, Leahy, didn't the closest election teach you nothing? And I said, well, I figured there was a lesson in there. So I called the man who had the closest election and I'm going to ask him what it is about our philosophy people didn't like. So I said, Senator Goldwater, what is it? Well, that story got picked up in the Arizona press. And he loved it. <laughs> he called me up and he said, look, we got to change our, our luck. Uh, Abramkoff, liberal Democrat from New England, had reti was retiring that year. So I've always liked his office. I'm going to move in there. You can move in mine. And you've always liked my office. I said, yeah, but I'm not senior enough for that. He said, don't worry. We Republicans have taken over the Senate now. You can move next Friday. And this was that, 80, right? So this is Reagan landslide. 1980. You survived the Reagan landslide. And I've been, I've been in Barry Goldwater's old office ever since. It's still your office today. Yeah, in the Russell building. It's expanded by a few extra rooms, but <laughs> it's still there. And we patched all the holes in the walls where he drilled to put his uh, ham radio antennas out. K7 Uga was his call line. Huh, so he was like a ham uh, radio uh, amateur? He would call soldiers from Arizona and Vietnam, or they could call him. Huh. He'd stay up half the night doing this, and he'd patch in the telephone to their families back home. This was back before cell phones. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of soldiers from Arizona, the only way they could talk to their family back home was through Barry Goldwater's ham radio, and I, which is something. Yeah. And we became very good friends. Who was a better photographer? He used primarily, uh, or a lot, black and white and scenic ones had an eye for it that I, I could not capture. He was sort of an Ansel Adams kind of That's style. Right. Yeah. You know, I was born basically blind in one eye, but yeah. photography... Which I... Which I left eye. You left eye, yeah. Uh, but photography is the... You only need one eye for it. And so a lot of your photos are almost journalistic. Bill sign, I, you know... You, well, I, I'm the only person usually staying with a camera staying behind the president. Right, right. All the photographers, everybody are in front, and other members of Congress are crowded to get in the picture. I just want to get a picture of the president's hand. Let's talk about some of the the, the characters uh, that you've served with in, in in Vermont. Let's talk about Jeffords first. I feel like you're one of the uh, the how to put this. Uh, some of the uh, elected officials from Vermont. That there's a certain um, kind of cranky, crusty quality to them. <laughs> you, you, you're, you're the more, you're of the, of the Jeff, Jeffords, Bernie, and you, you're sort of the most, uh, 
<laughs> even yeah. killed. But tell us about, uh, let's talk about Jeffords, and then we got to talk about Bernie a little bit. Well, Jeffords, uh, when, when I ran for the Senate, he ran for the House, he said, uh, there's no way either one of us could run for the Senate. You should run for something you can get elected to, but I think I can get elected to the House. <laughs> and uh, we believed in a lot of the same things. We just sometimes took different routes in, in trying to get there. I, I was more interested in getting it done. I didn't care who got credit for it. And, Je- and, and Jeffords was what? A little more, um, he needed to, ha- the, the credit was important to him? Well, I think it was to those around him, at least. But, yeah. I mean, it, Jim Jeffords had a long um, history in Vermont and his family. And uh, we just took different, uh, different ways of achieving things. Did you have any role in um, helping him flip and caucus with the Democrats? I know the discussion was going on, and I, I went and saw Jim. Then I said, Jim, you're my friend. He said, were you here to talk me into changing? I said, no, that's going to be your decision. But I will publicly support you whatever you do. You stay in the Republican Party. I will make sure that you do not get criticism from the Democrats. I'll be supportive. And if you join our party, I'll make sure... Uh, I have a strong following among both Republicans and Democrats in Vermont. I will support what you're doing. And um, I think our relationship became much stronger after that. After that. And, of course, for listeners that don't remember, him him flipping changed the 50-50 Senate to the Democrats. Well, I did become chairman again. And I've been in in the majority and I've been in the minority several times. I like the majority better. (laughs) There, There is a... Well, it's another story. <laughs> well, go ahead. We'll finish the thought. No, I think uh, uh, Senator Stafford, in retirement, I used to stop in to see him every time I could because we were such good friends. And yeah. In fact, I spoke at his, at his funeral. And he told me that when the rumors were starting that Senator Jeffords was going to change parties, Bob got a call at home from... The first President Bush, remember President Bush's son is now president. And he, he said, Bob, um, good to hear your voice. Well, good to hear yours, George. And it's Bob and George, Bob and George. And he said, I hear um, your senator, Senator Jeffers, is thinking of changing parties. He said, yep. George, he came over to see me. said he thought he would, and I told him, well, I think you'd be a lot happier in that party. Long pause. Well, good talking with you, Senator. Good talking with you, Mr. President. <laughs> wow. Wait, did, I'm sorry. That was the president's, uh, that was that was George H.W. Bush who made the call? Yeah. On but, it, the, but it was Bob or George until they got to that last part. It was like, <laughs> uh, well, good... But that uh, good talking with you, Senator. Good talking with you, Mr. President. What's so interesting about that story is you really don't hear that many stories of the father intervening in the in W's years in in, in, in well, that uh, I, in I that way. That, so he was doing a little kind of uh, back channel uh, intelligence yeah. gathering. Well, I think that uh, the mistake was made, and and I always got along well with George W. Bush, the son. 
I think the mistake was made by probably people like Carl Rove who thought they could intimidate Jim Jeffords. Yeah. And I don't think anybody's going to intimidate him. And uh, they made one dramatic mistake. In the Republican Party, he had a chairmanship that involved education. And a Vermont teacher was named the uh, National Teacher of the Year, was going to get the award at the White House. Well, every year when this happens, uh, whatever state they're from, the congressional delegation is invited down. Uh, none of the three of us were invited. And they came out in the press, Rove or somebody down at the White House said, well, we had a, a problem of room for it. The year before the uh, Teacher of the Year, or a couple of years before, been from California, and they had the California delegation down, uh, what's that, 30, 40 people? Yeah. Here were three. And I think they were, thought that that might humiliate uh, Jim Jeffords. They, and they were, at that point, they were squeezing him because it was a 50-50 Senate on the tax cut vote and Bush's education plan and his whole first term, first year agenda there. Well, they made a mistake. You can, you can urge something, but don't make threats. Before we talk about uh, Bernie and some other folks, just it reminds me this this pressure uh, on Jeffords. What's the time in your career where you felt the most pressure from from the White House, from a president personally, on something? Well, I felt pressure was brand new to vote to continue the war in Vietnam, and and I said no. What about since then? That's a that's, and that was your first year on the job. Yeah, first year of the job. Well, I think it's sort of set a standard. I've had presidents of both parties talk to me about doing something, but uh, did not bring heavy pressure because they knew I'd make up my mind. I I know that um, first President Bush, somebody came to him and said, and I found out this from him later, would. Uh, he called and urged me to vote for some bill. He said, no, because he won't vote for it. He shouldn't because it wouldn't be popular in his state of Vermont. I'll wait till there's something we need. But no, I think presidents know that they can urge me to do something uh, and, and should. Um, I'm always glad to talk about it, but I'll make up my own mind. What's the... Um the reverse of that, what was the issue or cause that you feel like you went all out to try and um, convince the White House to adopt a position or push for something that you were really passionate about? Well, a couple of things. I, I strongly urged President Clinton to sign the landmine treaty. He didn't. He said that there would be problems because of South Korea. And I said there if you're willing to negotiate on this, they'll make an exception for South Korea. I talked with the Canadians and others who are doing it, and I strongly urged them to. Uh, they didn't. That, that was a great disappointment. Yeah. The other area I was, and we came closer to it, was to normalize 
relations with Cuba. Yeah. And I've gone back and forth there a lot. Um, we were making good strides. President Obama made the first visit to Cuba, I think, since Calvin Coolidge. Mm. And um, I remember the crowds cheering him when he came down there, American president. American flags flying everywhere. Uh, Donald Trump says, well, we're going to reverse that when he came in. He had no more idea of what was going on there or not. And as a result, it's done two things. It's hurt the people of Cuba, the average family members and all, who, as we were lifting embargoes and everything, where their lives were improving. But it's also given uh, power to the worst people within the government because everything that goes wrong, they can just blame on the United States. And I'd like to see us get back to where we were. Diplomacy starting You with, traveled there a lot. and You yeah, met Raul Castro Biden, and... Uh, uh, Jack Reed, the senator from Rhode Island, and I and Marcel made a first trip to Cuba, had long discussions with Fidel Castro. And uh, I, with uh, Raul Castro... A lot, in fact, brought messages back and forth between Raul Castro and the Obama you did. administration. I did uh, uh, un unsigned, uh, unaddressed, plain uh, letters, but they knew who they were from. And then uh, did they go both ways, Obama and Raul, or it was Raul, it was all one way, Raul to Obama? Both ways. But then they set up. Uh, President Obama set up a in Canada, with the Canadians' help, a place where Cubans and Americans could meet. And that was just kept secret until afterward. Uh, they could pass messages back and forth. Just to give listeners a little understanding of this, when you're like a, a courier for these secret messages between these two leaders who have, you know, had this... Uh, Cold War between them for decades and decades. Uh, and you've got it like in your hand on yourself. This isn't like a, a staff member. Um, no, no, I, I, I would do you, what? Did you uh, did you sneak a peek at the letter, or did you did you not know its contents? No, I, didn't I would have found it very hard not to take a look. Well, President Obama was up for re-election. I was down there, led a delegation. Senators. Again, I always had both Republicans and Democrats. And um, Castro says, Can I talk to you privately? To a translator. And he said, um, Is President Obama going to be reelected? Because I, he had seen some polls that looked different. I said, No, I've, I've seen all those polls. I've seen all, he's going to be reelected. So good. He said, I want him to. He's an honest man. Uh, I like him and I can work with him. And he kind of looked around, chuckled. He said, of course, I'm not going to say that publicly before the election because that would defeat him. <laughs> and we both were standing over in the corner laughing. Everybody's wondering what we're laughing about. He was right. That's amazing. Tell us a little bit about Bernie and your long relationship <laughs> With, with, Bernie. with Bernie and what people uh, what, what, what people don't maybe don't understand about Bernie. Well, I, I do remember the first 
time I ran, he came in as a third-party candidate in a liberal party, and I, I did mention to him, I, I said, Bernie, you know, all those votes you're getting, they're coming from me. <laughs> and he said, well, you, you can't win anyway, uh, and I'm going to get my name known. But notwithstanding that, we got along well. To give you a difference, an idea of what it's like in Vermont, we had these candidate forums, and he came, he was a single father at the time with a young child, and we had a son who was 10 years old at the time. And I, I said, Kevin, would you mind staying here and babysit? He said, no. So Bernie and I go in, we're debating each other, and the uh, our lone congressman who's a Republican candidate, and what nobody in the press knew or anybody else. Yeah. Our son is babysitting his son. I mean, this is Vermont, and and uh, but we've we've always uh, got along well. I uh, obviously I wished he hadn't run that year, and but he had every right to. I've had third and sometimes fourth party candidates run virtually every one of my elections, but I seem to get by. You think Bernie will ever no. join the Dem? <laughs> no, he's he's a proud socialist and independent. Um, we talked a little bit about the Obama years and some of the issues you you pushed him on. You guys developed an early relationship in the Senate, as a lot of senators seem to do, bonding in the gym. And uh, you you um, you were a key endorsement for him in the in the primary against Hillary after he lost in, in New Hampshire. What made you convinced that it was the right thing for him to be such a young senator and, and, and run for president so soon after? You were part of a little club like Ted Kennedy and some of the other gen, uh, senators from your generation that really took him under their wings. First off, you know, I think the world of Hillary Clinton. But I felt at the time he ran that Barack Obama was the right person, that he could appeal to generations uh, older and younger than he was. And we'd, we'd really gotten to know each other. Uh, we'd work out in the gym. I, in a matter of honesty, he's a lot better shaped than I am, and a lot faster. We would trash talk the heck out of each other. If anybody didn't know us, they'd wonder what kind of enemies we are. And then we'd walk out of the gym with our arms around each other, laughing our heads off. The uh, things we've said. There's two funny lines from your gym meeting that you recount in the book. Uh, well, I, I said, uh, Brock, uh, you're you're late. Uh, cameras in your way, <laughs> or something like that. And uh, and it's a good one, Leahy. But about those ratty old sneakers of yours, <laughs> and we both be laughing. But I called him. Uh, Marcel and I love to scuba dive, and we've been down scuba diving. I had watched him lose to Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire, heard his concession speech, and I said, um, I'm going to endorse him. So we, I called him, and he uh, he said, well, you know, I'm way behind now in the polls. I said, yes, but I think you can get elected, and I'll support you. And uh, he talked to Marcel, he said, you're down scuba diving, well, tell Patrick to wear a hat and put on sunscreen, that bald head of his, 
And I said, no, come to think of it, I, I got the wrong number here. I was trying to call John McCain. <laughs> and he just, he just laughed. But, but we've always been like that. And uh, Marcel and Michelle got along well, very well. Thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Happy to. And that's our show. Our producers are Afra Abdullah and Kara Tabor. Adam Ellington is our senior producer. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Amont is the executive producer of audio at Politico. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. <laughs>